We are glad to welcome David Royce back to our pulpit this morning and look forward to what the Lord has for us through David. Would you please turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 25. That's Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 25, as we read the text for today's sermon. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Good morning. If you could uh, keep that passage open, it's a delight to be able to call your attention to God's word this morning. Uh, Would you perhaps join me as we ask for God's help? Our great God in heaven, Lord, it, it truly is a privilege to bow before you, to gather as your people, to recognize our need for you. And Lord, in this moment, we recognize our need for you. Lord, I recognize my need for you. Lord, the many burdens that are represented in this room, my own inability and weakness. God, we're approaching your very word to us, and you are high and lifted up. You are exalted above all things. You are the living God, the Holy One over all. Would you draw near to us by your Spirit, Father? And would you... Draw near to every burden and need that is represented in this room. Use our time now, please, to meet with us, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've ever shopped at a department store, then you will already have an idea of what our passage that we just read this morning is about. Uh, Truly, if you have ever shopped at anything or tried to purchase 
anything in our culture, you will know that there are things in our world which we called top tier, quality, and sought after. We tend to call them name brand things. And you also know that right alongside these top tier, high class, name brand things, there are other products that are, well, let's just say, not so much. We call them off-brand things. Sometimes we call them knockoff brands. And the funny thing happens in our world, you're very familiar with it, is that we go often to places and we have a need to make split-second, in-the-moment value judgments. Surely you know what I'm talking about, because you can, in our culture, buy an iPhone, but I just learned this week, do you know there also exists in other parts of the world an O-phone? Do <laughs> you have the top-tier brand, which is Sony? And some clever person has invented the brand Phony. I went to buy Dove soap because that's what I'm told I need to use for dry skin. And right along such, I don't know if it's a joke or not, but right alongside Dove in the very same cursive font, there exists a soap called Dave, <laughs> which was calling out to me in many ways than one. This happens all around. This happens in campus culture. An athlete on campus reflected to me his great desire to buy a Puma shirt to fit in, except it didn't say Puma. It was one of these online pranks. It read Pumba, like a cartoon online character. Look carefully before you buy is what they say. And if you know what I'm talking about, surely you do, then you have an idea what our passage is about. Why is that? Because what happens in our world with products also happens with spirituality. What I mean by that is there is a great deal, much like off-brands, in our world that masquerades as Christianity. Uh, but the scriptures tell us that there is a great need in our land and in our world and perhaps in the church for discernment and God's going to call you as well to make split-second value judgments, mostly about your own faith. And if you look down at our passage, you'll see this very thing. I'd like to point out a couple of things as you keep it open. In verse 11, you'll note that Jesus, in our text, is in Jerusalem. That means he's arrived at this place, the context being that for a good bit of Mark's gospel, he is in Galilee. For some of it, he is traveling but he's arrived in Jerusalem. What's more, it says in verse 11 that he is in the temple or the temple area, and that's just where he goes. That's the setting of our text. But what's more in verse 11, Mark, the gospel writer, makes a point of saying this, quote, Jesus looked around at everything. Perhaps you could make a mental note of that, because another way of saying that is that the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the wisest man who ever lived, has arrived at the place appointed for God's people, and his discerning eyes are falling in the place of God on the people of God. 
And as you know, in this gospel and all the others, Jesus is going to clash in Jerusalem with the religious leaders. In our passage, you could say that Jesus is inspecting, Jesus is exposing, and Jesus is discerning true from false. Empty religion from authentic spirituality. That's what this passage is about. And you'll notice it has this famous section of Jesus interacting with this fig tree. But the bottom line, the main point, it seems to me, that it is an urgent thing to consider, especially if you have grown up in church, what authentic spirituality is and what empty religion is. To be able to exercise the discernment that Jesus points out here to know the difference primarily for yourself because what a horrible thing it would be to be deceived about where you stand with God. So the main point is this. It's that true spirituality, according to Jesus, bears spiritual fruit. Could I say that again? The main point of this sermon is quite simple. It's to show you in different ways that Jesus points out that true spirituality means bearing spiritual fruit. We see this in three ways. There are three movements to this text I'd like to point out. The first is this, is that it seems to me that Jesus gives a parable of empty religion. That's your first point, a parable of empty religion. Another way to say that is Jesus first points off the knockoff brands. Read with me again verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when Jesus came to the fig tree, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. So take note here that Mark has included this wonderfully strange account of a time when Jesus points out a fig tree. You know, most people are very familiar with Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John. It's, you know, turning water into wine. What's, what's interesting is it's actually harder to call up in your memory, at least it is for me, what Jesus' last miracles are. And this is among them. This is the last miracle in Mark's account, anyway, save the resurrection. And on the surface, perhaps, it seems as if Well, did Jesus have a bad day? After all, it says here that it's not the season for figs. So perhaps he is merely taking it out on a fig tree. And many people have actually concluded this is a gratuitous miracle. It's the only gratuitous miracle. But Jesus is not doing a gratuitous, self-serving miracle. And, And an easy way to detect this is that the passage says that the disciples are the audience for this encounter. It says the disciples heard it, which means this isn't personal hunger. This is a deliberate parable. The text is offering us a lens for us to understand what is happening in the broader context. And maybe you could say that Jesus is speaking to the disciples to give them a lens for what he is about to do. Because we see the fig tree mentioned towards the beginning of this text, and wouldn't you know that Mark circles back and mentions the fig tree towards the end of the text, which means it is an interpretive context for what is in the middle, which is verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought 
in the temple. What does the fig tree have to do with that? Well, it's the interpretive lens for that. Much like the fig tree looked great from far away, as in it was full of leaves, upon closer inspection, Jesus concluded that it was fruitless. Disciples, that is what is happening in Jerusalem. That is Jesus' discernment for what is occurring in the temple. And and I want to suggest to you that is Jesus' demonstration. This is Jesus' miracle parable of how empty religion always works. Do you know that? The fig tree is meant to stand as a picture for what it perhaps means those great words of these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's empty religion. Said another way, for these people in this context, another way to say that is that empty religion uses God for personal gain. That's what's happening in the temple area. This is Jesus saying this needs to stop. This is his bringing down a a picture of judgment in the temple because that's empty religion. The fig tree parabolizes that. It's using God as opposed to worshiping God. It's me before God. God, please act on my schedule. I think we know what this is like and what this looks like, at least in a romantic context. My wife and I have counseled a number of we have the privilege to counsel a number of couples over the years. The vast majority of them, of course, are delightful romance stories where godly people are learning about one another. There are a couple interesting situations where young women have looked at me and said things like, I think I need to get out of this. What makes you think that way? Because he doesn't know anything about me. Dot, dot, dot. I feel like I'm being used. These things happen often, or I feel like I'm getting played. These are things that are are, are said when realizations happen. We, We know what that's like in a romantic context, and in a way you could say that's happening here in a worship context. Because worship, brothers and sisters, is, I think, supposed to be, I exist for God. And it seems to me, Jesus, in this passage, is reacting to the culture of, well, God, you exist for, for me. Isn't that right? Isn't that here? The temple, you had to bring a sacrifice because I exist for God. Yet, they know this, and in our passage, the temple has become more about an opportunity to get. We've had monetized God because God perhaps exists for me. What a subtle change has happened in the temple. Money changers here seems to imply that they're in the court of the Gentiles, perhaps. They're in the temple area. And buying pigeons would be quite convenient because that is the most affordable sacrifice after all. They're carrying things through the temple, we read, which many commentators think is some sort of a shortcut way of passage through the place of the meeting place of God and man. But, friends, why is this significant? Because that is how false religion works. That is the creep of empty religiosity. 
it, it does start with a good thing. It perhaps even starts with a godly thing or a commandment of God, but eventually the drift is away from anything to do with truly listening to God, anything to do with having your heart gripped for God, but rather co-opting God to get him to behave in the way that I want. This is the issue. And friends, I do think it is also alive and well in our world today. At least I'll tell you, it's alive and well. I feel the drift in my own heart. Today, this takes the form of groups that perhaps will talk about God. But God is a means to personal wealth. Seems to me that is dangerous. There, it's, it's possible to worship God, but to generally be in an environment where you are guaranteed this or that or wealth or healing. There is a propensity to think about God things as a way of personal gain. God forbid we enter the ministry as a means of looking good. And there are groups of people who primarily encourage the church to be about a business, which is another form of monetizing Jesus, it seems to me. And whatever the personal gain is, if God becomes a means for your personal end, it seems to be empty worship. This could be monetizing Jesus. I suppose it could also be socializing Jesus, where there is some sort of social benefit to you primarily. And yes, these are wonderful things, but in this passage, it's a piercing one because Jesus comes with his discerning eye and says, just so you know, he's not fooled. He always challenges that kind of thinking. And the result among the religious leaders is always the same. Here's another litmus test, of course, is verse 18. It says, they were seeking a way to destroy him. They're fearful. We got to get rid of this guy. And what a sad verse verse 18 is, isn't it? The temple is a meeting place of God and, and man. It's God's design. And Jesus, the eternal God, is here meeting with these men. And yet they are willing as is very classic textbook empty religion, they are willing to break their law to uphold their law. They seek to destroy the purifier instead of allowing themselves to be purified. And that, my friends, is what empty religion does. That is a light on the dashboard of the fruitless life. It's an insanity that defends itself even when it is challenged. There's always a reason why it's somebody else's fault. And what a, again, challenging picture this is. Because I grew up in the church. Maybe some of you did as well. And isn't it easy to think, huh, church, worship, Sunday, this is just what I do. This is where I feel at home. And that's wonderful. But brothers and sisters, just one chapter later, Jesus is going to say these words, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and they like greetings in the marketplaces, and they love the best seats and the places of honor, and who for a pretense, there's that word, make long prayers. The parable of empty religion is a fig tree 
There's lots of leaves, but no fruit. Do you see it? That's the first great point. This is what Jesus drives out. In a way, you could say it brings down a, a, a picture of divine judgment. It's a parable of empty religion. Now, I perhaps should not end the text there, because right after this, as I mentioned, the disciples are the audience for the parable. So notice just a minute how the text is going to now flip around from the knockoff brand to authentic spirituality. That's your second great point. Is The first is a parable of empty religion. The second thing, it seems to me, is that Jesus gives an explanation here of authentic spirituality. Jesus interprets the parable to the intended audience. So if the first point is saying it negatively, maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't want to be a fake. How can I have the real thing? Please, again, read with me verse 20. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Mark circles back to this tree. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, it has withered. Now, please note verse 22. And so Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Does that seem like a strange answer to you? It, it, it seems to be out of left field to me. Because perhaps you would expect Jesus to say something like, so you guys better prove yourselves. Because it seems to me, if you or I were writing the Bible, we would have said, so therefore make sure that you get your act together so that you can be the real deal, impressive to me, disciples. Oh no. What it seems to me Jesus is saying is that this, and of course this answer only makes sense in context. Jesus is saying to learn from the parable, don't be fruitless. Well, what does it mean then? What does bearing spiritual fruit look like? Well, disciples have an authentic spirituality about them. And what is real spirituality? What's striking about our passage, the surprise, is that Jesus points to incredibly ordinary things. Number one, Jesus says, authentic spirituality. Perhaps we could parse these verses. We believe in God's power. Did you see him say that? Jesus says authentic spirituality. If we don't want to be like the fig tree, he says have faith in God. It's that we exercise faith towards the living God who sits on the throne. This is what it means to follow him. We believe in God's power. Many of you know I serve on a college campus. This time of year, what's very, very popular is to invite people to do panel discussions, etc., these sorts of things. So I have in the past, not this year, served, I've sat along other Christians, and you know they, they arrange people from various systems of faith, and they interview them, and they ask them odd, hard questions. So, you know, the atheist gets a turn to answer, and this person from this religion, and then the token Christians get to answer, and, you know, atheists will say things like, I find a lot of these things about Christianity just absolutely absurd, etc. And they'll ask questions about the resurrection or the virgin birth. And do you guys really believe this? And it's striking to me that what has happened is on a panel of, quote, Christians, 
My fellow Christians, many of them say things like, well, we do believe in the virgin birth. Kind of. Man sitting next to me says, well, just so you know, in my church, when we talk about the resurrection, what we really mean is that Jesus rose for each of us differently. To which you don't want to know what I replied. But (laughs) that sort of thinking is incredibly popular in our day. I could call it a rather empty, semi-moralistic, feel-good sort of deism. And my friends, that's a stark contrast to what Jesus says in verse 23. Please read this. He says, I tell you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. What a tremendous verse. Jesus is not saying that you can really, really believe really, really hard to get whatever you want. He cannot be saying that because of the context. As a matter of fact, Jesus does not seem to me here to be talking about my personal mountain, He's not talking about the Pocono Mountains. He seems to be talking about this mountain, which should have been the one right there in the historical moment. What's he saying? He is saying being a Christian means to know that you serve a God who is alive. Authentic spirituality means that we don't believe in God simply because, you know, this works out for me and I'm really used to this system of faith. Being a Christian does not mean, oh, I have really nice morals and it helps me be a good citizen. Perhaps yes and amen, it does that. But it seems to me following Jesus, we do this and Christ is to be believed because he is true. And that he really came and the apostles gave their lives proclaiming this. And Jesus is saying here that his rule extends to the biggest things in this physical world, mountains, that his rule is not imagined, it is real. He uses the language of decreation, mountains being picked up and thrown into the sea. He is saying, Almighty God created them, and Almighty God is on the throne to decreate them. Do you think of God in this way? There is a connection to a divine power source for those who have faith. We believe in God's power. Seems to me Jesus is also saying, number two, we depend on him in prayer. Again, a rather ordinary thing. This is verse 24. He goes on, related to believing in his power, is a a dependence. Verse 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Again, Jesus is not saying, please use God to do your bidding. And I think there are persons who have tragically read this verse or atomized it out of its context to arrive at a personal prosperity understanding, which of course is the exact opposite of what Jesus just said. Why does he mention prayer? He is saying that the living God is accessible. 
He's saying that the spiritual realm is so real and that God is deliberately caring and personal that you can rely on him. And this is, this is a, a, a mark and, and a privilege of those who really believe in the living God. They ask. I say that word to my children very often. Maybe you do too, parents. Ask. One of my uh, sons is highly uh, independent, let's just say for his age. And a couple months ago, while the weather was still warm, he decided that he wanted to have a campfire. You see where this is going. I came downstairs to find a trail of matches in my house. Which, of course, as a parent, is the last sight that you want to see because you start putting the A to B to C story together. And I followed a trail of matches to go outside to see him sitting on the deck trying to light a fire. After I composed myself and said, what are you doing? And he said, I want to have a fire. I said, do you know what a fire is? Are you sure you want to do that, right? There's also this thing as burning our house down. This is a textbook moment. They train for this in parent school. You shouldn't burn your house down. And I, I look around, I look around, and he's sitting there. There's like this little fire ring. There's a, there's, a, there's a stick. There's this little stick that he pulled off of a tree. There is a bag of marshmallows, and it's all set up. <laughs> Eventually, as compassion washed over me, I said, Son, you're welcome to have a fire. But here's a thought. Ask. And then I went and I read this passage, and I said, I think a similar thing should be said to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You get the point, of course. Christians have all sorts of needs. Christians have all sorts of wants. I know perhaps you woke up this morning or many mornings saying, God, I really, really feel a lack or I have a want, or I really don't want. Authentic spirituality, according to Jesus, is this. My brothers and sisters, ask the living God. The contrast, of course, here is that the temple, Jesus pointed out, was supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations. And then he circles back, and he says... My friends, followers, disciples, please make yourselves about praying. Prayer for the nations. Prayer for what you need. And friends, I know the grief, perhaps, and the burden that you might feel. The exhaustion of asking God and praying for things, and you feel like there is unanswered prayer. I understand And I know many of you know more than I do what it is like to pray for something, to pray for something, and to keep praying for something, and you start to wonder, what's the use of praying? Yeah, I I know. 
But Jesus is saying that your asking God is one of the marks that you belong to God. Your persistence in crying out, you can think of it as a certificate of authenticity. Because it's showing you love for God. It is cultivating humility of spirit. And perhaps God just loves to hear from his kids. We believe in God's power. We depend on him in prayer. Verse 25, Jesus moves on to this. Here's another trait. We have the forgiveness of a father. Real disciples... Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Again, a fascinating verse. Jesus here seems to say that the family of God is a family of abundant forgiveness. Did you notice that? That's a mark of healthy, authentic spirituality. I think every game show in the history of, of, of game shows has done something like they look at the contestant and they say, what are you going to do if you win the million dollars? Is that too small? Inflation. Five million dollars. What are you going to do if that happens? And they always say, well, I wouldn't have to scrounge around anymore. I don't need to feel like I can't afford this or I can't afford that. So that's why every game show asks that question. You see, it's what would it be like to come into unspeakable wealth? My brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying, Christian, you are in a position of spiritual wealth. Due to no merit on your part, due to nothing that you have done, Jesus tells these guys, listen, your Father in heaven forgives. Because he is wealthy in the forgiveness department, he has grace that is displayed For all to see. And the decisive way to tell if someone has infinite wealth is that they don't need to live like a scared orphan anymore. Or a parallel experience is a decisive way to tell if you are enjoying forgiveness is if you extend that forgiveness. There's like a family of abundant love that you have been brought into, that we're following the Lord Jesus. And did you see what he says? He says, not the Father in heaven. He says, your Father. Your Father. This is authentic spirituality. It's the opposite of pretense or performitis, if that is a word. It is instead the life of Jesus being born in you. And forgiveness can be a barometer. It can be a mark of authenticity because we have the forgiveness of a father. Friends, do you, do you know this? Again, a, a, perhaps a challenging passage, one for introspection. And perhaps if you have a more sensitive conscience, this passage is not saying that we gain forgiveness by our ability to forgive. It's not saying we pray our way into heaven or we need to muster up an emotion to certify that we are his. No. But these things, these ordinary things, can be decisively things that help us to see 
I belong to God. Just like unforgiveness can be decisive evidence that maybe you're all leaves. Maybe there's no fruit. Maybe this is a show. So you see, Jesus has talked about this empty religion parable. And then he's explained the parable to the disciples. But last, as we close, it seems to me that it might be appropriate to say, how do you move from one category to the other? In in a good direction, anyway. Well, what if you recognize areas of empty religiosity today? I want to end by showing you the third great overarching point to me is that Jesus, or the, the gospel writer rather, has demonstrated that there is hope for true change. In here, in this gospel, in this text, there is an explanation of, or a parable of empty religion. There's an explanation of authentic spirituality. Let's end with the hope for true change. Because right after this encounter, you know the natural question that is immediately asked Jesus in chapter 12? Everybody wants to know, what authority do you have to do this? I think very naturally it moves into the realm of authority. One of the reasons why the authority question is natural is because big picture. I want you to notice that in verse 20 through 25 of the text that we read, which is the last section, Jesus is acting like an authoritative prophet. He's saying things authoritatively. Well, wouldn't you know if you back up a little bit in verses 15 through 19, Jesus is acting like an authoritative priest. In other words, he is on authority guarding the temple place of God, which is fascinating. And wouldn't you know in verses 13 to 14, which is the beginning verses that we read, Jesus comes and he's acting like an authoritative king because the king has come and he is bringing down judgment and curse and defeat and who lives and who dies. He's executing a curse. And so this leads to this question of either Jesus is exactly who he says he is, or he is not. Why is he acting like a prophet and a priest and a king? Because all of these offices provide for you what it means that you have a mediator between God and man, and there's a hope for change for you. Removing sacrifices. The priests throwing out sacrifices. Jesus is removing sacrifice because, as you know, he will take on and become the sacrifice in just a couple pages. Jesus is declaring, declaring the truth of the gospel to us in these closing verses. Jesus is calling down curses on the fig tree as the one who executes divine judgment. And it's fascinating to me that the God-man knows full well as he looks at that tree that the culmination of his life is that he's going to be nailed to a tree. The plot to destroy Jesus will accelerate and he will be lifted up to die for the sins of the world. Maybe you know this if you're newer to Christianity. Crucifixion is not a random way to die. Crucifixion is a picture of someone being cursed. It's shed blood because of a sacrifice that needs to be made. 
The gospel, the crucifixion, is a proclamation of the love of God and the way of forgiveness. So do you see all of these offices coming to bear? Jesus is going to proclaim the love of God on the cross. He's going to shed his own blood as a sacrifice. And he is going to become a curse as judgment falls. And Jesus is the only real son of God. God's people here are fakes. And God is going to curse him. Jesus is going to wither away in pain. And you know those famous words, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he does that so that people like you and me can have this privileged position of being able to call out to God and know that he hears. The prophet of God, the priest of God, the king who has come, I think that wakes up our hearts and provides a fuel in the gospel of Jesus to say, I'm not in this for show. Like my heart is stirred, it is moved towards the king of kings. Don't work your way back into the family. You know what you have to do? Have faith in God. Perhaps we could end where we started. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you say that there is authentic spiritual fruit? If not, today is the day of salvation. Would you perhaps take a moment, would you pray silently and consider where is there an opportunity for application or encouragement from this text for you, and after which I'll lead us in prayer and close. Let's pray. Our Father, surely all of us feel areas where we talk a big talk, where we claim things with our mouths, but our, but our hearts do not follow suit. Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on us, and by your power, would you declare to us truth this morning to lift our spirits? Would you help us to see your shed blood for us? as the final sacrifice, would we cherish that judgment has not fallen on us? Thank you, Father, for refreshing our souls. And would we leave here people who love you, who call on you, and who trust in you? Thank you for this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, could I invite you to stand for the benediction, if that's okay? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine on you and to be gracious to you. May he lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.